0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests to talk about the originator of the what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, Except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, radio-free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to
1: time.
2: Recording by Red Abras The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 6 Ye gods of quiet and of sleep profound, Whose soft dominion over this castle space, And all the widely silent places round, Forgive me if my trembling pen displays what never yet was sung in mortal lays, lace. The Count gave orders for the north apartments to be opened and prepared for the reception of Lodovico. But Dorothy, remembering what she had lately witnessed there, feared to obey. And not one of the other servants daring to venture thither, the rooms remained shut up till the time when Lodovico was to retire thither for the night an hour for which the whole household waited with impatience. After supper, Ludovico, by the order of the count, attended him in his closet, where they remained alone for near half an hour, and on leaving which his lord delivered to him a sword. It has seen service in mortal quarrels, said the count jocosely. You will use it honorably, no doubt, in a spiritual one. Tomorrow let me hear that there is not one ghost remaining in the chateau. Ludovico received it with a respectful bow. You shall be obeyed, my lord, said he. I will engage that no specter shall disturb the peace of the chateau after this night. They now returned to the supper-room, where the Count's guests awaited to accompany him and Ludovico to the door of the north apartments and Dorothy being summoned for the keys, delivered them to Ludovico, who then led the way, followed by most of the inhabitants of the chateau. Having reached the back staircase, several of the servants shrunk back and refused to go further, but the rest followed him to the top of the staircase, where a broad landing place allowed them to flock round him, while he applied the key to the door during which they watched him with as much eager curiosity as if he had been performing some magical rite. Ludovico, unaccustomed to the lock, could not turn it, and Dorothy, who had lingered far behind, was called forward, under whose hand the door opened slowly, and, her eye glancing within the dusky chamber, she uttered a sudden shriek and retreated. At this signal of alarm, the greater part of the crowd hurried down the stairs, and the count, Henry and Ludovico, were left alone to pursue the inquiry, who instantly rushed into the apartment, Ludovico with a drawn sword, which he had just time to draw from the scabbard, the count with the lamp in his hand, and Henry carrying a basket containing provisions for the courageous adventurer. Having looked hastily round the first room, where nothing appeared to justify alarm, they passed on to the second. And here too, all being quiet, they proceeded to a third with a more tempered step. The Count had now leisure to smile at the discomposer into which he had been surprised, and to ask Ludovico in which room he designed to pass the night. There are several chambers beyond these, Your Excellency, said Ludovico, pointing to a door. And in one of them is a bed, they say. I will pass the night there, and when I am weary of watching, I can lie down. Good, said the Count. Let us go on. You see, these rooms show nothing but damp walls and decaying furniture. I have been so much engaged since I came to the chateau that I have not looked into them till now. Remember, Ludovico, to tell the housekeeper tomorrow to throw open these windows. The damask hangings are dropping to pieces. I will have them taken down and this antique furniture removed. Dear sir, said Henry, here is an armchair so massive with gilding that it resembles one of the state chairs at the Louvre, more than anything else. Yes, said the count, stopping a moment to survey it. There is a history belonging to that chair, but I have not time to tell it. Let us pass on. This suit runs to a greater extent than I had imagined. It is many years since I was in them. Where is the bedroom you speak of, Ludovico? These are only antechambers to the great drawing-room. I remember them in their splendour. The bed, my lord, replied Ludovico. They told me was in a room that opens beyond the saloon and terminates the suite. Oh, here is the saloon, said the count, as they entered the spacious apartment, in which Emily and Dorothy had rested. He here stood for a moment, surveying the relics of faded grandeur, which it exhibited. The sumptuous tapestry, the long and low sofas of velvet with frames heavily carved and gilded, the floor inlaid with small squares of fine marble and covered in the centre with a piece of very rich tapestry work, the casements of painted glass, and the large Venetian mirrors of a size and quality such as at that period France could not make which reflected on every side the spacious apartment. These had formerly also reflected a gay and brilliant scene, for this had been the state-room of the chateau. And here the Marchioness had held the assemblies, that made part of the festivities of her nuptials. If the wand of a magician could have recalled the vanished groups, many of them vanished even from the earth, that once had passed over these polished mirrors, what a varied and contrasted picture would they have exhibited with the present. Now, instead of a blaze of lights and a splendid and busy crowd, they reflected only the rays of the one glimmering lamp, which the Count held up and which scarcely served to shew the three forlorn figures that stood surveying the room and the spacious and dusky walls around them. Ah! said the Count to Henry, awaking from his deep reverie, How the scene has changed since last I saw it. I was a young man then. And the marchioness was alive and in her bloom. Many other persons were here too, who are now no more. There stood the orchestra. Here we tripped in many a sprightly maids, the walls echoing to the dance. Now there resound only one feeble voice, and even that will here long be heard no more. My son, remember that I was once as young as yourself, and that you must pass away like those who have preceded you like those who, as they sung and danced in this once gay apartment, forgot that years are made up of moments, and that every step they took carried them nearer to their graves. But such reflections are useless. I had almost said criminal, unless they teach us to prepare for eternity since otherwise they cloud our present happiness without guiding us to a future one. But enough of this. Let us go on. Ludovico now opened the door of the bedroom, and the Count, as he entered, was struck with the funeral appearance which the dark arras gave to it. He approached the bed with an emotion of solemnity, and perceiving it to be covered with the pall of black velvet, paused. "'What can this mean?' said he as he gazed upon it. "'I have heard, my lord,' said Ludovico, as he stood at the feet, looking within the canopied curtains, "'that the lady Marchioness de Villeroy died in this chamber "'and remained here till she was removed to be buried. "'And this, perhaps, Signor, may account for the pall.' The count made no reply, but stood for a moment engaged in thought, and evidently much affected. Then turning to Ludovico, he asked him with a serious air whether he thought his courage would support him through the night. If you doubt this, added the count, do not be ashamed to own it. I will release you from your engagement without exposing you to the triumphs of your fellow servants. Ludovico paused. Pride and something very like fear seemed struggling in his breast. Pride, however, was victorious. He blushed. And his hesitation ceased no my lord said he i will go through with what i have begun and i am grateful for your consideration on that hearth i will make a fire and with the good cheer in this basket i doubt not i shall do well be it so said the count but how will you beguile the tediousness of the night if you do not sleep when i am weary my lord replied ludovico i shall not fear to sleep In the meanwhile, I have a book that will entertain me. Well, said the count, I hope nothing will disturb you. But if you should be seriously alarmed in the night, come to my apartment. I have too much confidence in your good sense and courage to believe you will be alarmed on slight grounds or suffer the gloom of this chamber or its remote situation to overcome you with ideal terrors. Tomorrow I shall have to thank you for an important service. These rooms shall then be thrown open, and my people will be convinced of their error. Good night, Ludovico. Let me see you early in the morning, and remember what I lately said to you. I will, my lord. Good night to your excellency. Let me attend you with the light. He lighted the Count and Henry through the chambers to the outer door. On the landing-place stood a lamp which one of the affrighted servants had left, and Henry, as he took it up, again bade Ludovico good night, who, having respectfully returned the wish, closed the door upon them and fastened it. Then, as he retired to the bedchamber, he examined the rooms through which he passed with more minuteness than he had done before, for he apprehended that some person might have concealed himself in them for the purpose of frightening him. No one, however, but himself was in these chambers, and leaving open the doors through which he passed, he came again to the great drawing-room, whose spaciousness and silent gloom somewhat awed him. For a moment he stood, looking back through the long suite of rooms he had quitted, and as he returned, perceiving a light and his own figure reflected in one of the large mirrors, he started. Other objects too were seen obscurely on its dark surface, but he paused not to examine them and returned hastily into the bedroom. As he surveyed which, he observed the door of the Oriel and opened it. All within was still. On looking round, his eye was arrested by the portrait of the deceased Marchioness. upon which he gazed for a considerable time, with great attention and some surprise. And then, having examined the closet, he returned into the bedroom, where he kindled a wood fire, the bright blaze of which revived his spirits, which had begun to yield to the gloom and silence of the place. For gusts of wind alone broke at intervals this silence. He now drew a small table and a chair near the fire, took a bottle of wine and some cold provisions out of his basket, and regaled himself. When he had finished his repast, he laid his sword upon the table, and not feeling disposed to sleep, drew from his pocket the book he had spoken of. It was a volume of old Provençal tales. Having stirred the fire upon the hearth, he began to read, and his attention was soon wholly occupied by the scenes which the page disclosed. The Count, meanwhile, had returned to the supper-room whither those of the party who had attended him to the north apartment had retreated upon hearing Dorothy's scream, and who were now earnest in their enquiries concerning those chambers. The count rallied his guests on their precipitate retreat and on the superstitious inclination which had occasioned it, and this led to the question whether the spirit, after it has quitted the body, is ever permitted to revisit the earth and if it is, whether it was possible for spirits to become visible to the sense. The Baron was of opinion that the first was probable and the last was possible, and he endeavoured to justify this opinion by respectable authorities, both ancient and modern, which he quoted. The Count, however, was decidedly against him, and a long conversation ensued, in which the usual arguments on these subjects were on both sides brought forward with skill, And discussed with candor, but without converting either party to the opinion of his opponent. The effect of their conversation on their auditors was various. Though the Count had much the superiority of the Baron in point of argument, he had considerably fewer adherents, for that love, so natural to the human mind, of whatever is able to distend its faculties with wonder and astonishment, attached the majority of the company to the side of the baron, and though many of the count's propositions were unanswerable, his opponents were inclined to believe this the consequence of their own want of knowledge on so abstracted a subject, rather than that arguments did not exist, which were forcible enough to conquer his. Blanche was pale with attention till the ridicule in her father's glance called a blush upon her countenance and she then endeavoured to forget the superstitious tales she had been told in her convent. Meanwhile, Emily had been listening with deep attention to the discussion of what was to her a very interesting question. And remembering the appearance she had witnessed in the apartment of the late Marchioness, she was frequently chilled with awe. Several times she was on the point of mentioning what she had seen, but the fear of giving pain to the Count and the dread of his ridicule restrained her, and awaiting in anxious expectation the event of Ludovico's intrepidity, she determined that her future silence should depend upon it. When the party had separated for the night, and the Count retired to his dressing room, the remembrance of the desolate scenes he had lately witnessed in his own mansion deeply affected him. But at length he was aroused from his reverie and his silence. What music is that I hear? said he suddenly to his valet. Who plays it at this late hour? The man made no reply, and the count continued to listen, and then added, That is no common musician. He touches the instrument with a delicate hand. Who is it, Pierre? My lord, said the man hesitatingly. Who plays that instrument? repeated the count. Does not your lordship, no, then, said the valet. What mean you? said the count, somewhat sternly. Nothing, my lord. I meant nothing, rejoined the man submissively. Only that music goes about the house at midnight often, and I thought your lordship might have heard it before. Music goes about the house at midnight? Poor fellow. Does nobody dance to the music, too? It is not in the chateau, I believe, my lord. The sounds come from the woods, they say. Though they seem so near, but then a spirit can do anything. Ah, poor fellow, said the count. I perceive you are as silly as the rest of them. Tomorrow you will be convinced of your ridiculous error. But hark, what voice is that? Oh, my lord, that is the voice we often hear with the music. Often? said the count how often pray it's a very fine one why my lord i myself have not heard it more than two or three times but there are those who have lived here longer they have heard it often enough what a swell was that exclaimed the count as he still listened and now what a dying cadence this is surely something more than mortal that is what they say, my lord, said the valet. They say it is nothing mortal that utters it, and if I might say it my thoughts. Peace, said the count, and he listened till the strain died away. This is strange, said he, as he turned from the window. Close the casements, Pierre. Pierre obeyed, and the count soon after dismissed him, but did not so soon lose the remembrance of the music which long vibrated in his fancy in tones of melting sweetness, while surprise and perplexity engaged his thoughts. Ludovico meanwhile, in his remote chamber, heard now and then the faint echo of a closing door as the family retired to rest, and then the hall clock at a great distance strike twelve. It is midnight said he, and he looked suspiciously round the spacious chamber. The fire on the hearth was now nearly expiring, for his attention having been engaged by the book before him, he had forgotten everything besides. But he soon added fresh wood, not because he was cold, though the night was stormy, but because he was cheerless, and having again trimmed his lamp, he poured out a glass of wine, drew his chair nearer to the crackling blaze tried to be deaf to the wind that howled mournfully at the casements, endeavoured to abstract his mind from the melancholy that was stealing upon him, and again took up his book. It had been lent to him by Dorothy, who had formerly picked it up in an obscure corner of the Marquis's Library, and who, having opened it and perceived some of the marvels it related, had carefully preserved it for her own entertainment its condition giving her some excuse for detaining it from its proper station. The damp corner into which it had fallen had caused the cover to be disfigured and mouldy, and the leaves to be so discoloured with spots that it was not without difficulty the letters could be traced. The fictions of the provencal writers, whether drawn from the Arabian legions, brought by the Saracens into Spain, or recounting the chivalric exploits performed by the crusaders whom the troubadours accompanied to the East, were generally splendid and always marvellous, both in scenery and incident, and it was not wonderful that Dorothy and Ludovico should be fascinated by inventions, which had captivated the careless imagination in every rank of society in a former age. Some of the tales, however, in the book now before Ludovico, were of simple structure, and exhibited nothing of the magnificent machinery and heroic manners which usually characterized the fables of the 12th century and of this description was the one he now happened to open which in its original style was of great length but which may be thus shortly related the reader will perceive that it is strongly tinctured with the superstition of the times the provencal tale they are left in the province of beratagni a noble baron, famous for his magnificence and courtly hospitalities. His castle was graced with ladies of exquisite beauty and thronged with illustrious knights. For the honour he paid to feats of chivalry invited the brave of distant countries to enter his lights, and his court was more splendid than those of many princes. Eight minstrels were retained in his service, who used to sing to their harps romantic fictions taken from the arabians or adventures of chivalry that befell knights during the crusades or the martial deeds of the baron their lord while he surrounded by his knights and ladies banqueted in the great hall of his castle where the costly tapestry that adorned the walls with pictured exploits of his ancestors the casements of painted glass enriched with armorial bearings the gorgeous banners that waved along the roof The sumptuous canopies, the profusion of gold and silver that glittered on the sideboards, the numerous dishes that covered the tables, the number and gay liveries of the attendants with the chivalric and splendid attire of the guests united to form a scene of magnificence such as we may not hope to see in these degenerate days. Of the Baron the following adventure is related. One night, having retired late from the banquet to his chamber and dismissed his attendants, he was surprised by the appearance of a stranger, of a noble air, but of a sorrowful and dejected countenance. Believing that this person had been secreted in the apartment, since it appeared impossible he could have lately passed the ante-room, unobserved by the pages in waiting, Who would have prevented this intrusion on their lord, the baron, calling loudly for his people, drew his sword, which he had not yet taken from his side, and stood upon his defence. The stranger, slowly advancing, told him that there was nothing to fear, that he came with no hostile design but to communicate to him a terrible secret which it was necessary for him to know baron appeased by the courteous manners of the stranger, after surveying him for some time in silence, returned his sword into the scabbard and desired him to explain the means by which he had obtained access to the chamber and the purpose of this extraordinary visit. Without answering either of these enquiries, the stranger said that he could not then explain himself but that, if the baron would follow him to the edge of the forest at a short distance from the castle walls, He would there convince him that he had something of importance to disclose this proposal again alarmed the baron who could scarcely believe that the stranger meant to draw him to so solitary a spot at this hour of the night without harboring a design against his life and he refused to go observing at the same time that if the stranger's purpose was an honorable one he would not persist in refusing to reveal the occasion of his visit in the apartment where they were. While he spoke this, he viewed the stranger still more attentively than before, but observed no change in his countenance or any symptom that might intimate a consciousness of evil design. He was habited like a knight, and was of a tall and majestic stature, and of dignified and courteous manners. Still, however, he refused to communicate the subject of his errand in any place, but that he had mentioned. And At the same time gave hints concerning the secret he would disclose that awakened a degree of solemn curiosity in the baron which at length induced him to consent to follow the stranger on certain conditions sir knight said he i will attend you to the forest and will take with me only four of my people who shall witness our conference to this however the knight objected what i would disclose said he with solemnity is to you alone. There are only three living persons to whom the circumstance is known. It is of more consequence to you and your house than I shall now explain. In future years you will look back to this night with satisfaction or repentance accordingly as you now determine. As you would hereafter prosper, follow me. I pledge you the honor of a night that no evil shall befall you. If you are contented to dare futurity, remain in your chamber, and I will depart as I came. Sir Knight, replied the Baron, how is it possible that my future peace can depend upon my present determination? That is not now to be told, said the stranger. I have explained myself to the utmost. It is late. If you follow me, it must be quickly. You will do well to consider the alternative. The baron mused, and as he looked upon the night he perceived his countenance assume a singular solemnity. Here Ludovico thought he heard a noise, and he threw a glance round the chamber, and then held up the lamp to assist his observation. But not perceiving anything to confirm his alarm, he took up the book again and pursued the story. The baron faced his apartment for some time in silence, impressed by the last words of the stranger whose extraordinary request he feared to grant, and feared also to refuse. At length he said, Sir knight, you are utterly unknown to me. Tell me yourself, is it reasonable that I should trust myself alone with a stranger at this hour in a solitary forest? Tell me at least who you are, and who assisted to secrete you in this chamber. The knight frowned at these latter words, and was a moment silent. Then with a countenance somewhat stern he said, I am an English knight, I am called Sir Bevis of Lancaster, and my deeds are not unknown to the holy city, whence I was returning to my native land when I was benighted in the neighbouring forest. Your name is not unknown to fame, said the baron, I have heard of it. The knight looked haughtily. But why, since my castle is known to entertain all true knights, did not your herald announce you? Why did you not appear at the banquet, where your presence would have been welcomed? instead of hiding yourself in my castle and stealing to my chamber at midnight?" The stranger frowned and turned away in silence, but the baron repeated the questions. "'I come not,' said the knight, "'to answer enquiries, but to reveal facts. If you would know more, follow me, and again I pledge the honour of a knight, that you shall return in safety. Be quick in your determination. I must be gone.' After some further hesitation, the baron determined to follow the stranger and to see the result of his extraordinary request. He therefore again drew forth his sword, and taking up a lamp, bade the knight lead on. The latter obeyed, and opening the door of the chamber, they passed into the anteroom, where the baron, surprised to find all his pages asleep, stopped, and with hasty violence was going to reprimand them for their carelessness. When the knight waved his hand and looked so expressively upon the baron that the latter restrained his resentment and passed on. The knight, having descended a staircase, opened a secret door, which the baron had believed was known only to himself, and, proceeding through several narrow and winding passages, came at length to a small gate that opened beyond the walls of the castle. Meanwhile, the baron followed in silence and amazement on perceiving that these secret passages were so well known to a stranger and felt inclined to return from an adventure that appeared to partake of treachery as well as danger. Then, considering that he was armed and observing the courteous and noble air of his conductor, his courage returned, he blushed that it had failed him for a moment, and he resolved to trace the mystery to its source. He now found himself on the heathy platform before the great gates of his castle, where, on looking up, he perceived lights glimmering in the different casements of the guests who were returning to sleep, and while he shivered in the blast and looked on the dark and desolate scene around him, he thought of the comforts of his warm chamber, rendered cheerfully by the blaze of wood, and felt for a moment the full contrast of his present situation. Here Ludovico paused a moment. and. Looking at his own fire, gave it a brightening stir. The wind was strong, and the baron watched his lamp with anxiety, expecting every moment to see it extinguished. But though the flame wavered, it did not expire, and he still followed the stranger, who often sighed as he went, but did not speak. When they reached the borders of the forest, the knight turned and raised his head as if he meant to address the baron, but then, closing his lips in silence, he walked on. As they entered beneath the dark and spreading boughs, the baron, affected by the solemnity of the scene, hesitated whether to proceed and demanded how much further they were to go. The knight replied only by a gesture, and the baron, with hesitating steps and a suspicious eye, followed through an obscure and intricate path, till having proceeded a considerable way, he again demanded whether they were going, and refused to proceed unless he was informed. As he said this, he looked at his own sword, and at the knight, alternately, who shook his head, and whose dejected countenance disarmed the baron for a moment of suspicion. A little further is the place whither I would lead you, said the stranger. No evil shall befall you. I have sworn it on the honour of a knight. The baron, reassured, again followed in silence, and they soon arrived at a deep recess of the forest where the dark and lofty chestnuts entirely excluded the sky, and which was so overgrown with Underwood, that they proceeded with difficulty. The knight shied deeply as he passed, and sometimes paused, and having at length reached a spot where the trees crowded into a knot, he turned, and with a terrific look, pointing to the ground, the baron saw there the body of a man, stretched at its length and weltering in blood. A ghastly wound was on the forehead and death appeared already to have contracted the features. The Baron, on perceiving the spectacle, started in horror, looked at the knight for explanation, and was then going to raise the body and examine if there were yet any remains of life. But the stranger, waving his hand, fixed upon him a look so earnest and mournful, as not only much surprised him, but made him desist. But what were the Baron's emotions? When, on holding the lamp near the features of the corpse, he discovered the exact resemblance of the stranger his conductor, to whom he now looked up in astonishment and inquiry. As he gazed, he perceived the countenance of the night change and begin to fade, till his whole form gradually vanished from his astonished sense. While the baron stood fixed to a spot, a voice was heard to utter these words. Ludovico started and laid down the book, for he thought he heard a voice in the chamber, and he looked toward the bed, where, however, he saw only the dark curtains and the pall. He listened, scarcely daring to draw his breath, but heard only the distant roaring of the sea in the storm, and the blast that rushed by the casements, when concluding that he had been deceived by its signs, he took up his book to finish the story. While the baron stood fixed to the spot, a voice was heard to utter these words. The body of Sir Bevis of Lancaster, a noble knight of England, lies before you. He was, this night, waylaid and murdered as he journeyed from the holy city towards his native land. Respect the honor of knighthood and the law of humanity. Inter the body in Christian ground and cause his murderers to be punished. As you observe or neglect this, shall peace and happiness or war and misery light upon you and your house forever. The Baron, when he recovered from the awe and astonishment into which this adventure had thrown him, returned to his castle, whither he caused the body of Sir Bevis to be removed, and on the following day it was interred with the honours of knighthood in the chapel of the castle, attended by all the noble knights and ladies who graced the court of Baron de Brune. Ludovico, having finished this story, laid aside the book for he felt drowsy and after putting more wood on the fire and taking another glass of wine, he reposed himself in the armchair on the hearth. In his dream he still beheld the chamber where he really was and once or twice started from imperfect slumbers, imagining he saw a man's face looking over the high back of his armchair. This idea had so strongly impressed him that when he raised his eyes he almost expected to meet other eyes fixed upon his own and he quitted his seat and looked behind the chair before he felt perfectly convinced that no person was there. Thus closed the hour. End of volume 4 chapter 6 recording by Red Abrus The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4 Chapter 7 Enjoy the honey-heavy dew of slumber. Thou hast no figures nor no fantasies, which busy care draws in the brains of men. Therefore thou sleepest so sound. Shakespeare The Count, who had slept little during the night, rose early and anxious to speak with Ludovico, went to the north apartment. But, the outer door having been fastened on the preceding night, he was obliged to knock loudly for admittance. Neither the knocking or his voice was heard. But, considering the distance of this door from the bedroom, and that Ludovico, wearied with watching, had probably fallen into a deep sleep, the Count was not surprised on receiving no answer and leaving the door he went down to walk in his grounds. It was a grey autumnal morning. The sun rising over Provence gave only a feeble light, as his rays struggled through the vapours that ascended from the sea, and floated heavily over the wood tops, which were now varied with many a mellow tint of autumn. The storm was past, but the waves were yet violently agitated, and their course was traced by long lines of foam, while not a breeze fluttered in the sails of the vessels near the shore that were weighing anchor to depart. The still gloom of the hour was pleasing to the Count, and he pursued his way through the woods sunk in deep thought. Emily also rose at an early hour and took her customary walk along the brow of the promontory that overhung the Mediterranean. Her mind was now not occupied with the occurrences of the chateau and Valancourt was the subject of her mournful thoughts, whom she had not yet taught herself to consider with indifference, though her judgment constantly reproached her for the affection that lingered in her heart after her esteem for him was departed. Remembrance frequently gave her his parting look and the tones of his voice when he had bade her a last farewell. And some accidental associations now recalling these circumstances to her fancy with peculiar energy, she shed bitter tears to the recollection. Having reached the watchtower, she seated herself on the broken steps, and in melancholy dejection watched the waves, half hid in vapour, as they came rolling towards the shore, and threw up their light spray round the rocks below. Their hollow murmur and the obscuring mists that came in wreaths up the cliffs gave a solemnity to the scene, which was in harmony with the temper of her mind. And she sat, given up to the remembrance of past times, till this became too painful, and she abruptly quitted the place. On passing the little gate of the watch-tower, she observed letters engraved on the stone postern which she paused to examine, and though they appeared to have been rudely cut with a penknife, the characters were familiar to her. At length, recognizing the handwriting of Valancourt, she read with trembling anxiety the following lines, entitled, Shipwreck, till solemn midnight, on this lonely steep, beneath this watchtower's desolated wall, where mystic shapes the wanderer appall. I rest and view below the desert deep, As through tempestuous clouds the moon's cold light Gleams on the wave, viewless the winds of night, With loud mysterious force the billows sweep, And sullen roar the surges far below. In the still pauses of the gust I hear, The voice of spirits rising sweet and slow, And oft among the clouds their forms appear. But hark, what shriek of death comes in the gale, and in the distant ray what glimmering sail, bends to the storm, now sinks the note of fear. Ah, wretched mariners, no more shall day, unclose his cheering eye to light ye on your way. From these lines it appeared that Valancourt had visited the tower, that he had probably been here on the preceding night, for it was such an one as they described, and that he had left the building very lately, since it had not long been light, and without light it was impossible these letters could have been cut. It was thus even probable that he might be yet in the gardens. As these reflections passed rapidly over the mind of Emily. They called up a variety of contending emotions that almost overcame her spirits, but her first impulse was to avoid him, and immediately leaving the tower she returned with hasty steps towards the chateau. As she passed along she remembered the music she had lately heard near the tower, with the figure which had appeared, and in this moment of agitation she was inclined to believe that she had then heard and seen Valancourt. But other recollections soon convinced her of her error. On turning into a thicker part of the woods, she perceived a person walking slowly in the gloom at some little distance, and her mind engaged by the idea of him, she started and paused, imagining this to be Valancourt. The person advanced with quicker steps, and before she could recover recollection enough to avoid him, he spoke, and she then knew the voice of the Count who expressed some surprise on finding her walking at so early an hour, and made a feeble effort to rally her on her love of solitude. But he soon perceived this to be more a subject of concern than of light laughter, and changing his manner affectionately expostulated with Emily on thus indulging unavailing regret, who, though she acknowledged the justness of all he said, could not restrain her tears while she did so and he presently quitted the topic. Expressing surprise at not having yet heard from his friend, the advocate at Avignon, in answer to the questions proposed to him, respecting the estates of the late Madame Montoni, he with friendly zeal endeavoured to cheer Emily with hopes of establishing her claim to them, while she felt that the estates could now contribute little to the happiness of a life, in which Valencourt had no longer an interest. When they returned to the chateau, Emily retired to her apartment, and Count De Villefort to the door of the north chambers. This was still fastened, but being now determined to arouse Ludovico, he renewed his calls more loudly than before. After which a total silence ensued, and the Count, finding all his efforts to be heard ineffectual, at length began to fear that some accident had befallen Ludovico whom terror of an imaginary being might have deprived of his senses. He therefore left the door with an intention of summoning his servants to force it open, some of whom he now heard moving in the lower part of the chateau. To the Count's inquiries whether they had seen or heard Ludovico, they replied in affright that not one of them had ventured on the north side of the chateau since the preceding night. ''He sleeps soundly then,'' said the Count and is at such a distance from the outer door which is fastened, that to gain admittance to the chambers it will be necessary to force it. Bring an instrument, and follow me." The servants stood mute and dejected, and it was not till nearly all the household were assembled that the Count's orders were obeyed. In the meantime, Dorothy was telling of a door that opened from a gallery, leading from the great staircase into the last anteroom of the Salon and this being much nearer to the bedchamber it appeared probable that ludovico might be easily awakened by an attempt to open it thither therefore the count went but his voice was as ineffectual at this door as it had proved at the remoter one and now seriously interested for ludovico he was himself going to strike upon the door with the instrument when he observed its singular beauty and withheld the blow it appeared on the first glance to be of ebony so dark and close was its grain and so high its polish but it proved to be only of larch wood of the growth of provence then famous for its forests of larch the beauty of its polished hue and of its delicate carvings determined the count to spare the stone and he returned to that leading from the back staircase which being at length forced he entered the first anteroom followed by Henry and a few of the most courageous of his servants, the rest awaiting the event of the inquiry on the stairs and landing-place. All was silent in the chambers, through which the count passed, and having reached the salon, he called loudly upon Lodovico, after which, still receiving no answer, he threw open the door of the bedroom and entered. The profound stillness within confirmed his apprehensions for Lodovico. For not even the breathings of a person in sleep were heard, and his uncertainty was not soon terminated. Since the shutters being all closed, the chamber was too dark for any object to be distinguished in it. The count bade a servant open them as he crossed the room to do so, stumbled over something and fell to the floor. When his cry occasioned such panic among the few of his fellows who had ventured thus far that they instantly fled, and the Count and Henry were left to finish the adventure. Henry then sprung across the room, and opening a window shutter, they perceived that the man had fallen over a chair near the hearth, in which Ludovico had been sitting for he sat there no longer, nor could anywhere be seen by the imperfect light that was admitted into the apartment. The count, seriously alarmed, now opened other shutters that he might be enabled to examine further, and Ludovico, not yet appearing, he stood for a moment, suspended in astonishment and scarcely trusting his senses, still, his eyes glancing on the bed, he advanced to examine whether he was there asleep. No person, however, was in it and he proceeded to the Oriel, where everything remained as on the preceding night, but Ludovico was nowhere to be found. The count now checked his amazement, considering that Ludovico might have left the chambers during the night, overcame by the terrors, which their lonely desolation and the recollected reports concerning them had inspired. Yet if this had been the fact, the man would naturally have sought society. And his fellow servants had all declared that they had not seen him the door of the outer room also had been found fastened with the key on the inside it was impossible therefore for him to have passed through that and all the outer doors of this suite were found on examination to be bolted and locked with the keys also within them the count being then compelled to believe that the lad had escaped through the casements next examined them but such as opened wide enough to admit the body of a man were found to be carefully secured either by iron bars or by shutters, and no vestige appeared of any person having attempted to pass them. Neither was it probable that Ludovico would have incurred the risk of breaking his neck by leaping from a window when he might have walked safely through a door. The Count's amazement did not admit of words, but he returned once more to examine the bedroom. There was no appearance of disorder except that occasioned by the late overthrow of the chair, near which had stood a small table, and on this Ludovico's sword, his lamp, the book he had been reading, and the remnant of his flask of wine still remained. At the foot of the table, too, was the basket with some fragments of provision and wood. Henry and the servant now uttered their astonishment without reserve, and though the count said little, there was a seriousness in his manner that expressed much. It appeared that Ludovico must have quitted these rooms by some concealed passage, for the count could not believe that any supernatural means had occasioned this event. Yet, if there was any such passage, it seemed inexplicable why he should retreat through it and it was equally surprising that not even the smallest vestige should appear by which his progress could be traced. In the rooms everything remained as much in order as if he had just walked out by the common way. The Count himself assisted in lifting the arras with which the bedchamber, salon and one of the anterooms were hung that he might discover if any door had been concealed behind it. But after a laborious search none was found, and he at length quitted the apartments, having secured the door of the last antechamber, the key of which he took into his own possession. He then gave orders that strict search should be made for Ludovico, not only in the chateau but in the neighbourhood, and retiring with Henry to his closet, they remained there in conversation for a considerable time, and whatever was the subject of it, Henry from this hour lost much of his vivacity, and his manners were particularly grave and reserved, whenever the topic, which now agitated the Count's family with wonder and alarm, was introduced. On the disappearing of Ludovico, Baron St. Foyx seemed strengthened in all his former opinions concerning the probability of apparitions, though it was difficult to discover what connection there could possibly be between the two subjects, or to account for this effect otherwise than by supposing that the mystery attending Ludovico, by exciting awe and curiosity, reduced the mind to a state of sensibility, which rendered it more reliable to the influence of superstition in general. It is, however, certain that from this period the Baron and his adherents became more bigoted to their own systems than before. While the terrors of the Count's servants increased to an excess, that occasioned many of them to quit the mansion immediately, and the rest remained only till others could be procured to supply their places. The most strenuous search after Ludovico proved unsuccessful, and after several days of indefatigable inquiry, poor Annette gave herself up to despair, and the other inhabitants of the chateau to amazement. Emily, whose mind had been deeply affected by the disastrous fate of the late Marchioness, and with the mysterious connection which she fancied had existed between her and saint Aubert, was particularly impressed by the late extraordinary event, and much concerned for the loss of Ludovico, whose integrity and faithful services claimed both her esteem and gratitude. She was now very desirous to return to the quiet retirement of her convent every hint of this was received with real sorrow by the lady blanche and affectionately set aside by the count for whom she felt much of the respectful love and admiration of a daughter and to whom by dorothy's consent she at length mentioned the appearance which they had witnessed in the chamber of the deceased marchioness at any other period He would have smiled at such a relation, and have believed that its object had existed only in the distempered fancy of the relator. But he now attended to Emily with seriousness, and when she concluded, requested of her a promise, that this occurrence should rest in silence. Whatever may be the cause and the import of these extraordinary occurrences, added the Count, time only can explain them. I shall keep a wary eye upon all that passes in the chateau, and shall pursue every possible means of discovering the fate of Ludovico. Meanwhile, we must be prudent and be silent. I will myself watch in the north chambers, but of this we will say nothing till the night arrives when I purpose doing so. The count then sent for Dorothy and required of her also a promise of silence concerning what she had already or might in future witness of an extraordinary nature. And this ancient servant now related to him the particulars of the Marchioness de Valori's death, with some of which he appeared to be already acquainted, while by others he was evidently surprised and agitated. After listening to this narrative, the count retired to his closet where he remained alone for several hours, and when he again appeared, the solemnity of his manner surprised and alarmed Emily, but she gave no utterance to her thoughts. On the week following the disappearance of Ludovico, all the Count's guests took leave of him, except the Baron, his son Monsieur St. Foy and Emily, the latter of whom was soon after embarrassed and distressed by the arrival of another visitor. Monsieur Dupont, which made her determine upon withdrawing to her convent immediately. The delight that appeared in his countenance when he met her told that he brought back the same ardor of passion which had formerly banished him from Chateau-les-Blanc. He was received with reserve by Emily and with pleasure by the Count, who presented him to her with a smile that seemed intended to plead his cause, and who did not hope the less for his friend from the embarrassment she betrayed. But Monsieur Dupont, with truer sympathy, seemed to understand her manner, and his countenance quickly lost its vivacity and sunk into the languor of despondency. On the following day, however, he sought an opportunity of declaring the purport of his visit, and renewed his suit. A declaration which was received with real concern by Emily, who endeavoured to lessen the pain she might inflict by a second rejection, with assurances of esteem and friendship. Yet she left him in a state of mind that claimed and excited her tenderest compassion, and being more sensible than ever of the impropriety of remaining longer at the chateau, she immediately sought the count and communicated to him her intention of returning to the convent. My dear Emily, said he, I observe with extreme concern the illusion you are encouraging, an illusion common to young and sensible minds. Your heart has received a severe shock. You believe you can never entirely recover it, and you will encourage this belief till the habit of indulging sorrow will subdue the strength of your mind, and discolor your future views with melancholy and regret. Let me dissipate this illusion and awaken you to a sense of your danger. Emily smiled mournfully. I know what you would say, my dear sir, said she, and I am prepared to answer you. I feel that my heart can never know a second affection, and that I must never hope even to recover its tranquility if I suffer myself to enter into a second engagement. I know that you feel all this, replied the count. And I know also that time will overcome these feelings unless you cherish them in solitude and pardon me with romantic tenderness. Then, indeed, time will only confirm habit. I am particularly empowered to speak on this subject and to sympathize in your sufferings, added the Count, with an air of solemnity. For I have known what it is to love and to lament the object of my love. Yes, continued he while his eyes filled with tears. I have suffered, but those times have passed away, long past, and I can now look back upon them without emotion. My dear sir, said Emily timidly, What mean those tears? They speak, I fear, another language. They plead for me. They are weak tears, for they are useless ones, replied the count, drying them. I would have you superior to such weakness. These, however, are only faint traces of a grief, which, if it had not been opposed by long-continued effort, might have led me to the verge of madness. Judge then, whether I have not cause to warn you of an indulgence which may produce so terrible an effect, and which must certainly, if not opposed, overcloud the years that otherwise might be happy. Monsieur Dupont is a sensible and amiable man who has long been tenderly attached to you. His family and fortune are unexceptionable. After what I have said, it is unnecessary to add that I should rejoice in your felicity and that I think Monsieur Dupont would promote it. Do not weep, Emily, continued the Count, taking her hand. There is happiness reserved for you. He was silent a moment and then added in a firmer voice, I do not wish that you should make a violent effort to overcome your feelings. All I at present ask is that you will check the thoughts that would lead you to a remembrance of the past, that you will suffer your mind to be engaged by present objects, that you will allow yourself to believe it possible you may yet be happy, and that you will sometimes think with complacency of poor Dupont and not condemn him to the state of despondency, from which, my dear Emily, I am endeavouring to withdraw you. Ah, my dear sir, said Emily, while her tears still fell, do not suffer the benevolence of your wishes to mislead Monsieur Dupont with an expectation that I can never accept his hand. If I understand my own heart, this never can be. Your instruction I can obey in almost every other particular than that of adopting a contrary belief. Leave me to understand your heart, replied the Count with a faint smile. If you pay me the compliment to be guided by my advice in other instances, I will pardon your incredulity respecting your future conduct towards Monsieur Dupont. I will not even press you to remain longer at the chateau than your own satisfaction will permit. But though I forbear to oppose your present retirement, I shall urge the claims of friendship for your future visits. Tears of gratitude mingled with those of tender regret, while Emily thanked the Count for the many instances of friendship she had received from him, promised to be directed by his advice upon every subject but one and assured him of the pleasure with which she should, at some future period, accept the invitation of the countess and himself, if Monsieur Dupont was not at the chateau. The count smiled at this condition. Be it so, said he, meanwhile the convent is so near the chateau that my daughter and I shall often visit you, and if sometimes we should dare to bring you another visitor, will you forgive us? Emily looked distressed and remained silent. Well, rejoined the Count, I will pursue this subject no further, and must now entreat your forgiveness for having pressed it thus far. You will, however, do me the justice to believe that I have been urged only by a sincere regard for your happiness and that of my amiable friend, Monsieur Dupont. Emily, when she left the Count, went to mention her intended departure to the Countess who opposed it with polite expressions of regret, after which she sent a note to acquaint the lady abbess that she should return to the convent, and thither she withdrew on the evening of the following day. Monsieur Dupont, in extreme regret, saw her depart, while the count endeavoured to cheer him with the hope that Emily would sometimes regard him with a more favourable eye. She was pleased to find herself once more in the tranquil retirement of the convent, where she experienced a renewal of all the maternal kindness of the abbess and of the sisterly attentions of the nuns. A report of the late extraordinary occurrence at the chateau had already reached them, and after supper on the evening of her arrival, it was the subject of a conversation in the convent parlor, where she was requested to mention some particulars of that unaccountable event. Emily was guarded in her conversation on this subject and briefly related a few circumstances concerning Ludovico, whose disappearance her auditors almost unanimously agreed had been affected by supernatural means. A belief had so long prevailed, said a nun, who was called Sister Frances, that the chateau was haunted that I was surprised when I heard the count had the temerity to inhabit it. Its former possessor, I fear, had some deed of conscience to atone for. Let us hope that the virtues of its present owner will preserve him from the punishment due to the errors of the last, if indeed he was a criminal. Of what crime, then, was he suspected? said a mademoiselle Fedeu, a boarder at the convent. Let us pray for his soul, said nun who had till now sat in silent attention. If he was criminal, his punishment in this world was sufficient. There was a mixture of wildness and solemnity in her manner of delivering this, which struck Emily exceedingly. But Mademoiselle repeated her question without noticing the solemn eagerness of the nun. I dare not presume to say what was his crime, replied Sister Frances, but I have heard many reports of an extraordinary nature respecting the late Marquis de Valori and among others that soon after the death of his lady, he quitted Chateau Blancs and never afterwards returned to it. I was not here at the time, so I can only mention it from report, and so many years have passed since the Marchioness died that few of our sisterhood, I believe, can do more. But I can, said the nun, who had before spoke, and whom they called Sister Agnes. You then, said Mademoiselle Fedeu, are possibly acquainted with circumstances that enable you to judge whether he was criminal or not and what was the crime imputed to him i am replied the nun but who shall dare to scrutinize my thoughts who shall dare to pluck out my opinion god only is his judge and to that judge he is gone emily looked with surprise at sister francis who returned her a significant glance I only requested your opinion, said Mademoiselle Fadieu mildly. If the subject is displeasing to you, I will drop it. Displeasing? said the nun with emphasis. We are idle talkers. We do not weigh the meaning of the words we use. Displeasing is a poor word. I will go pray. As she said this, she rose from her seat and with a profound sigh quitted the room. What can be the meaning of this? said Emily when she was gone. It is nothing extraordinary, replied Sister Frances. She is often thus, but she had no meaning in what she says. Her intellects are at times deranged. Did you never see her thus before? Never, said Emily. I have indeed sometimes thought that there was the melancholy of madness in her look, but never before perceived it in her speech. Poor her soul, I'll pray for her. Your prayers, then, my daughter, will unite with ours, observed the Lady Abbess. She has need of them. Dear Lady, said Mademoiselle Fedio, addressing the Abbess, what is your opinion of the late Marquis? The strange circumstances that have occurred at the Chateau have so much awakened my curiosity that I shall be pardoned the question. What was his imputed crime, and what the punishment to which Sister Agnes alluded? We must be cautious of advancing our opinion," said the abbess, with an air of reserve mingled with solemnity. We must be cautious of advancing our opinion on so delicate a subject. I will not take upon me to pronounce that the late Marquis was criminal, or to say what was the crime of which he was suspected. But concerning the punishment our daughter Agnes hinted, I know of none he suffered. She probably alluded to the severe one, which an exasperated conscience can inflict. Beware, my children, of incurring so terrible a punishment. It is the purgatory of this life. The late Marchioness I knew well. She was a pattern to such as live in the world. Nay, our sacred order need not have blushed to copy her virtues. Our holy convent received her mortal part. Her heavenly spirit, I doubt not, ascended to its sanctuary. As the abbess spoke this, the last bell of vespers struck up, and she rose. Let us go, my children, said she, and intercede for the wretched. Let us go and confess our sins, and endeavor to purify our souls for the heaven to which she is gone. Emily was affected by the solemnity of this exhortation, and remembering her father, the heaven to which he too is gone, said she faintly as she suppressed her sighs and followed the abbess and the nuns to the chapel.
1: End
2: of Volume 4 Chapter 7
0: Recording by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, April 2007. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 8. Be thou a spirit of health, or goblin damned, bring with thee airs from heaven or blasts from hell, be thy intents wicked or charitable, I will speak to thee. Hamlet. Count de Villefort, at length, received a letter from the advocate at Avignon encouraging Emily to assert her claim to the estates of the late Madame Montoni. And about the same time, a messenger arrived from Monsieur Quenel with intelligence that made an appeal to the law on the subject unnecessary, since it appeared that the only person who could have opposed her claim was now no more. A friend of Monsieur Quenel, who resided at Venice, had sent him an account of the death of Montoni, who had been brought to trial with Orsino, as his supposed accomplice in the murder of the Venetian nobleman. Orsino was found guilty, condemned and executed upon the wheel, but nothing being discovered to criminate Montoni and his colleagues on this charge. They were all released except Montoni, who, being considered by the Senate as a very dangerous person, was, for other reasons, ordered again into confinement where, it was said, he had died in a doubtful and mysterious manner, and not without suspicion of having been poisoned. The authority from which M. Quenel had received this information would not allow him to doubt its truth, and he told Emily that she had now only to lay claim to the estates of her late aunt to secure them, and added that he would himself assist in the necessary forms of this business. The term for which La Vallée had been let, being now also nearly expired, He acquainted her with the circumstance, and advised her to take the road thither through Toulouse, where he promised to meet her, and where it would be proper for her to take possession of the estates of the late Madame Montoni, adding that he would spare her any difficulties that might occur on that occasion from the want of knowledge on the subject, and that he believed it would be necessary for her to be at Toulouse in about three weeks from the present time. An increase of fortune seemed to have awakened this sudden kindness in Monsieur Cornell towards his niece, and it appeared that he entertained more respect for the rich heiress than he had ever felt compassion for the poor and unfriended orphan. The pleasure with which she received this intelligence was clouded when she considered that he, for whose sake she had once regretted the want of fortune, was no longer worthy of sharing it with her. But remembering the friendly admonition of the count, she checked this melancholy reflection and endeavored to feel only gratitude for the unexpected good that now attended her. While it formed no inconsiderable part of her satisfaction to know that La Vallée, her native home, which was endeared to her by its having been the residence of her parents, would soon be restored to her possession. There she meant to fix her future residence for, though it could not be compared with the chateau at Toulouse, either for extent or magnificence, its pleasant scenes and the tender remembrances that haunted them had claims upon her heart, which she was not inclined to sacrifice to ostentation. She wrote immediately to thank Monsieur Cunel for the active interest he took in her concerns and to say that she would meet him at Toulouse at the appointed time. When Count de Villefort, with Blanche, came to the convent to give Emily the advice of the advocate, he was informed of the contents of Monsieur Quesnel's letter and gave her his sincere congratulations on the occasion. But she observed that when the first expression of satisfaction had faded from his countenance, an unusual gravity succeeded, and she scarcely hesitated to inquire its cause. It has no new occasion, replied the Count, I am harassed and perplexed by the confusion into which my family is thrown by their foolish superstition. Idle reports are floating round me, which I can neither admit to be true nor prove to be false, and I am also very anxious about the poor fellow Ludovico, concerning whom I have not been able to obtain information. Every part of the chateau and every part of the neighborhood, too, has, I believe, been searched and I know not what further can be done, since I have already offered large rewards for the discovery of him. The keys of the North apartment I have not suffered to be out of my possession, since he disappeared, and I mean to watch in those chambers myself this very night. Emily, seriously alarmed for the Count, united her entreaties with those of the Lady Blanche, to dissuade him from this purpose. What should I fear? said he. I have no faith in supernatural combats, and for human opposition I shall be prepared. Nay, I will even promise not to watch alone." "'But who, dear sir, will have courage enough to watch with you?' said Emily." "'My son,' replied the Count, "'if I am not carried off in the night,' added he, smiling, "'you shall hear the result of my adventure to-morrow.'" The Count and Lady Blanche, shortly afterwards, took leave of Emily and returned to the chateau where he informed Henri of his intention, who, not without some secret reluctance, consented to be the partner of his watch. And, when the design was mentioned, after supper, the countess was terrified, and the baron and Monsieur Dupont joined with her in entreating that he would not tempt his fate as Ludovico had done. We know not, added the baron, the nature or the power of an evil spirit, and that such a spirit haunts those chambers can now, I think, scarcely be doubted. Beware, my lord, how you provoke its vengeance, since it has already given us one terrible example of its malice. I allow it may be probable that the spirits of the dead are permitted to return to the earth only on occasions of high import. But the present import may be your destruction. The count could not forbear smiling. Do you think then, Baron, said he, that my destruction is of sufficient importance to draw back to earth the soul of the departed? "'Alas, my good friend, there is no occasion for such means to accomplish the destruction of any individual. "'Wherever the mystery rests, I trust I shall this night be able to detect it. "'You know I am not superstitious.' "'I know that you are incredulous,' interrupted the Baron. "'Well, call it what you will, I mean to say, that though you know I am free from superstition, "'if anything supernatural has appeared, I doubt not it will appear to me.' and if any strange event hangs over my house, or if any extraordinary transaction has formerly been connected with it, I shall probably be made acquainted with it. At all events I will invite discovery, and that I may be equal to a mortal attack, which in good truth, my friend, is what I most expect, I shall take care to be well armed. The Count took leave of his family for the night with an assumed gaiety. Which but ill concealed the anxiety that depressed his spirits, and retired to the north apartments, accompanied by his son, and followed by the baron, Monsieur Dupont, and some of the domestics, who all bade him good night at the outer door. In these chambers, everything appeared as when he had last been here. Even in the bedroom, no alteration was visible where he lighted his own fire, for none of the domestics could be prevailed upon to venture thither. After carefully examining the chamber and the oriel, the count and Henri drew their chairs upon the hearth, set a bottle of wine and a lamp before them, laid their swords upon the table, and, stirring the wood into a blaze, began to converse on indifferent topics. But Henri was often silent and abstracted, and sometimes threw a glance of mingled awe and curiosity round the gloomy apartment, while the count gradually ceased to converse and sat either lost in thought or reading a volume of Tacitus, which he had brought to beguile the tediousness of the night. End of Volume 4, Chapter 8 Recording by Kelly,
3: Pembroke, Georgia The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4, Chapter 9 Give thy thoughts no tongue, Shakespeare The Baron St. Foy, whom anxiety for his friend had kept awake, rose early to inquire the event of the night, when, as he passed the Count's closet, hearing steps within, he knocked at the door, and it was opened by his friend himself. Rejoicing to see him in safety, and curious to learn the occurrences of the night, he had not immediately leisure to observe the unusual gravity that overspread the features of the Count, whose reserved answers first occasioned him to notice it the count then smiling endeavored to treat the subject of his curiosity with levity but the baron was serious and pursued his inquiry so closely that the count at length resuming his gravity said well my friend press the subject no further i entreat you and let me request also that you will hereafter be silent upon anything you may think extraordinary in my future conduct i do not scruple to tell you that i am unhappy and that the watch of the last night has not assisted me to discover Ludovico, upon every occurrence of the night you must excuse my reserve." "'But where is Henry?' the baron said with surprise and disappointment at this denial. "'He is well within his own apartment,' replied the Count. "'You will not question him on this topic, my friend, since you know my wish.' "'Certainly not,' said the baron, somewhat chagrined, "'since it would be displeasing to you But, methinks, my friend, you might rely on my discretion, and drop this unusual reserve. However, you must allow me to suspect that you have seen reason to become a convert to my system, and are no longer the incredulous knight you lately appeared to be. Let us talk no more upon this subject," said the Count. "'You may be assured that no ordinary circumstance has imposed this silence upon me towards a friend whom I have called so for near thirty years, and my present reserve cannot make you question either my esteem, or the sincerity of my friendship. I will not doubt either, said the Baron, though you must allow me to express my surprise at this silence. To me I will allow it, replied the Count, but I earnestly entreat that you will forbear to notice it to my family, as well as everything remarkable you may observe in my conduct towards them. The Baron readily promised this and after conversing for some time on general topics, they descended to the breakfast room, where the Count met his family with a cheerful countenance, and evaded their inquiries by employing light ridicule, and assuming an air of uncommon gaiety, while he assured them that they need not apprehend any evil from the north chambers, since Henry and himself had been permitted to return from them in safety henry however was less successful in disguising his feelings from his countenance an expression of terror was not entirely faded he was often silent and thoughtful and when he attempted to laugh at the eager inquiries of mademoiselle Byrne, it was evident only an attempt in the evening the count called as he had promised at the convent and emily was surprised to perceive a mixture of playful ridicule and of reserve in his mention of the north apartment Of what had occurred there, however, he said nothing, and when she ventured to remind him of his promise to tell her the result of his inquiries, and to ask if he had received any proof that those chambers were haunted, his look became solemn. For a moment, then seeming to recollect himself, he smiled and said, "'My dear Emily, do not suffer, my lady Abbess, to infect your good understanding with these fancies. She will teach you to expect a ghost in every dark room.' But, believe me, added he, with a profound sigh, the apparition of the dead comes not on light, or sport of errands, to terrify or to surprise the timid. He paused, and fell into momentary thoughtfulness, and then added, We will say no more on this subject. Soon after, he took leave, and when Emily joined some of the nuns, she was surprised to find them acquainted with a circumstance which she had carefully avoided to mention, and expressing their admiration of his intrepidity in having dared to pass a night in the apartment whence Ludovico had disappeared, for she had not considered with what rapidity a tale of wonder circulates. The nuns had acquired their information from peasants, who brought fruit to the monastery, and whose sole attention had been fixed since the disappearance of Ludovico on what was passing in the castle. Emily listened in silence to the various opinions of the nuns, concerning the conduct of the Count, most of whom condemned it as a rash and presumptuous, affirming that it was provoking the vengeance of an evil spirit, thus to intrude upon its haunts. Sister Frances contended that the Count had acted with the bravery of a virtuous mind. He knew himself guiltless of aught that should provoke a good spirit, and did not fear the spells of an evil one since he could claim the protection of a higher power, of him who can command the wicked, and will protect the innocent. The guilty cannot claim that protection," said Sister Agnes. Let the Count look to his conduct, that he do not forfeit his claim. Yet who is he that shall dare to call himself innocent? All earthly innocence is but comparative. Yet still how wide asunder are the extremes of guilt, And to what a horrible depth may we fall! Oh! The nun, as she concluded, uttered a shuddering sigh, that startled Emily, who, looking up, perceived the eyes of Agnes fixed on hers, after which the sister rose, took her hand, gazed earnestly upon her countenance, for some moments, in silence, and then said, You are young, you are innocent, I mean, you are yet innocent of any great crime. But you have passions in your heart, scorpions. They sleep now. Beware how you awaken them. They will sting you, even unto death." Emily, affected by these words, and by the solemnity with which they were delivered, could not suppress her tears. "'Ah! Is it so?' exclaimed Agnes, her countenance softening from its sternness, so young and so unfortunate. We are sisters. Then, indeed. "'Yet there is no bond of kindness among the guilty,' she added, while her eyes resumed their wild expression. "'No gentleness, no peace, no hope. I knew them all once. My eyes could weep, but now they burn, for now my soul is fixed and fearless. I lament no more. "'Rather let us repent and pray,' said another nun. "'We are taught to hope that prayer and penitence will work our salvation. "'There is hope for all who repent.' who repent and turn to the true faith," observed Sister Frances. For all but me, replied Agnes solemnly, who paused, and then abruptly added, My head burns. I believe I am not well. Oh, I could strike from my memory all my former scenes. The figures that rise up like furies to torment me, I see them when I sleep, and when I am awake. They are still before my eyes. I see them now, now. She stood in a fixed attitude of horror, her straining eyes moving slowly around the room, as if they followed something. One of the nuns gently took her hand, to lead her from the parlor. Agnes became calm, drew her other hand across her eyes, looked again, and, sighing, deeply said, "They are gone. They are gone. I am feverish. I know not what I say. I am thus sometimes, but it will go off again." I shall soon be better. Was not that the Vesper bell?" No, replied Francis. The evening service is past. Let Margaret lead you to your cell. You are right, replied Sister Agnes. I shall be better there. Good night, my sisters. Remember me and your horizons. When they had withdrawn, Francis, observing Emily's emotion, said, Do not be alarmed. Our sister is often thus deranged. Though I have not lately seen her so frantic, her usual mood is melancholy. This fit has been coming on for several days. Seclusion and the customary treatment will restore her." But how rationally she conversed at first, observed Emily. Her ideas followed each other in perfect order. Yes, replied the nun. This is nothing new. Nay, I have sometimes known her to argue not only with method, but with acuteness and then, in a moment, start off into madness. Her conscience seems afflicted, said Emily. Did you ever hear what circumstance reduced her to this deplorable condition? I have, replied the nun, who said no more till Emily repeated the question, when she added in a low voice, and looking significantly towards the other borders. I cannot tell you now, but if you think it worth your while, come to my cell tonight, when our sisterhood are at rest and you shall hear more. But remember, we rise to midnight prayers, and come either before or after midnight." Emily promised to remember, and the abbess soon after appearing, they spoke no more of the unhappy nun. The Count, meanwhile, on his return home, had found M. DuPont in one of those fits of despondency which his attachment to Emily frequently occasioned him, an attachment that had subsisted too long to be easily subdued, and which had already outlived the opposition of his friends. M. Dupont had first seen Emily in Gascony during the lifetime of his parent, who, on discovering his son's partiality for Mademoiselle St. Aubert, his inferior in point of fortune, forbade him to declare it to her family, or to think of her more. During the life of his father, he had observed the first command, but had found it impracticable to obey the second, and had sometimes soothed his passion by visiting her favorite haunts, among which was the fishing-house, where once or twice he addressed her in verse, concealing his name in obedience to the promise he had given his father. There too he played the pathetic air to which she had listened with such surprise and admiration, and there he had found the miniature that had since cherished a passion fatal to his repose. During his expedition into Italy his father died, but he received his liberty at a moment when he was the least enabled to profit by it, since the object that rendered it most valuable was no longer within the reach of his vows. By what accident he discovered Emily, and assisted to release her from a terrible imprisonment, had already appeared, and also the unavailing hope with which he then encouraged his love, and the fruitless efforts that he had since made to overcome it. The Count still endeavored with friendly zeal to soothe him with a belief that patience, perseverance, and prudence would finally obtain for him happiness and Emily. Time, he said, will wear away the melancholy impression, which disappointment has left on her mind, and she will be sensible of your merit. Your services have already awakened her gratitude, and your sufferings her pity. And trust me, my friend, in a heart so sensible as hers, gratitude and pity lead to love. When her imagination is rescued from its present delusion, she will readily accept the homage of a mind like yours. DuPont sighed while he listened to these words, and endeavoring to hope what his friend believed, he willingly yielded to an invitation to prolong his visit at the chateau, which we now leave for the monastery of St. Clair. When the nuns had retired to rest, Emily stole to her appointment with Sister Frances, whom she found in her cell, engaged in prayer, before a little table, where appeared the image she was addressing, and above the dim lamp that gave light to the place. Turning her eyes as the door opened, she beckoned Emily to come in, who, having done so, seated herself in silence beside the nun's little mattress of straw till her horizons should conclude. The latter soon rose from her knees, and, taking down the lamp and placing it on the table, Emily perceived there a human skull and bones, lying beside an hourglass. But the nun, without observing her emotion, sat down on the mattress by her, saying, Your curiosity, sister, has made you punctual but you have nothing remarkable to hear in the history of poor Agnes, of whom I avoided to speak in the presence of my lay sisters, only because I would not publish her crime to them. I shall consider your confidence in me as a favor, said Emily, and will not misuse it. Sister Agnes, resumed the nun, is of a noble family, as the dignity of her heir must already have informed you, but I will not dishonor their name so much as to reveal it. Love was the occasion of her crime and of her madness. She was beloved by a gentleman of inferior fortune, and her father, as I have heard, bestowing her on a nobleman whom she disliked, an ill governed passion proved her destruction. Every obligation of virtue and of duty was forgotten, and she profaned her marriage vows. But her guilt was soon detected, and she would have fallen a sacrifice to the vengeance of her husband had not her father contrived to convey her from his power. By what means he did this, I never could learn, but he secreted her in this convent, where he afterwards prevailed with her to take the veil. While a report was circulated in the world that she was dead, and the father, to save his daughter, assisted the rumor, and employed such means as induced her husband to believe she had become a victim to his jealousy. "'You look surprised,' added the nun, observing Emily's countenance. "'I allow the story as uncommon, but not, I believe, without a parable.' "'Pray proceed,' said Emily. "'I am interested.' "'The story is already told,' resumed the nun. "'I have only to mention that the long struggle which Agnes suffered, "'between love, remorse, and a sense of the duty she had taken upon herself "'in becoming of our order, at length unsettled her reason.' At first she was frantic and melancholy, by quick alternatives. Then she sunk into a deep and settled melancholy, which still, however, has at times been interrupted by fits of wildness, and of late these have again been frequent. Emily was affected by the history of the sister, some parts of whose story brought to her remembrance that of the Marchioness de Villeroy, who had also been compelled by her father, to forsake the object of her affections for a nobleman of his choice. But from what Dorothy had related, there appeared no reason to suppose that she had escaped the vengeance of a jealous husband, or to doubt for a moment the innocence of her conduct. But Emily, while she sighed over the misery of the nun, could not forbear shedding a few tears to the misfortunes of the marchioness. And, when she returned to the mention of Sister Agnes, she asked Frances if she remembered her in her youth, and whether she was then beautiful. I was not here at the time, when she took the vows, replied Francis, which is so long ago that few of the present sisterhood, I believe, were witnesses to the ceremony. Nay, ever Our Lady Mother did not then preside over the convent, but I can remember when Sister Agnes was a very beautiful woman. She retains that air of high rank, which always distinguished her, but her beauty you must perceive is fled. I can scarcely discover even a vestige of the loveliness that once animated her features. It is strange, said Emily, but there are moments when her countenance has appeared familiar to my memory. You will think me fanciful, and I think myself so, for I certainly never saw Sister Agnes before I came to this convent, and I must. Therefore, have seen some person whom she strongly resembles, though of this I have no recollection. You have been interested by the deep melancholy of her countenance," said Francis, "and its impression has probably deluded your imagination. For I might as reasonably think I perceive a likeness between you and Agnes, as you that you have seen her anywhere but in this convent, since this has been her place of refuge for nearly as many years as make your age." Indeed, said Emily. Yes, rejoined Francis, and why does that circumstance excite your surprise? Emily did not appear to notice this question, but remained thoughtful for a few moments, and then said, It was about that same period that the Marchioness de Villeroy expired. That is an odd remark, said Francis. Emily recalled from her reverie, smiled, and gave the conversation another turn. But it soon came back to the subject of the unhappy nun, and Emily remained in the cell of Sister Frances, till the midnight bell roused her, when, apologizing for having interrupted the sisters' repose till this late hour, they quitted the cell together. Emily returned to her chamber, and the nun, bearing a glimmering taper, went to her devotion in the chapel. Several days followed, during which Emily saw neither the count or any of his family, and when at length he appeared marked with concern that his air was unusually disturbed. My spirits are harassed, said he, in answer to her anxious inquiries, and I mean to change my residence, for a little while, an experiment which I hope will restore my mind to its usual tranquillity. My daughter and myself will accompany the baron St. Foy to his chateau. It lies in the valley of the Pyrenees, that opens towards Gascony. And I have been thinking, Emily, that when you set out for La Valley, we may go part of the way together. It would be a satisfaction to me to guard you toward your home." She thanked the Count for his friendly consideration, and lamented that the necessity for her going first to Thalouse would render his plan impracticable. But when you are at the Baron's residence, she added, you will be only a short journey from La Valley, and I think, sir, you will not leave the country without visiting me. It is unnecessary to say with what pleasure I should receive you and the Lady Blanche." I do not doubt it, replied the Count, and I will not deny myself and Blanche the pleasure of visiting you, if your affairs should allow you to be at Valley. About the time when we can meet you there. When Emily said that she should hope to see the Countess also, she was not sorry to learn that this lady was going, accompanied by Mademoiselle Byrne to pay a visit for a few weeks to a family in Lower Langdoch. The Count, after some further conversation on his intended journey, and on the arrangement of Emily's, took leave, and many days did not succeed this visit, before a second letter from M. Cusnau informed her that he was then at Toulouse, that Lavallee was at liberty, and that he wished her to set off for the former place, where he awaited her arrival with all possible dispatch, since his own affairs pressed him to return to Gascony. Emily did not hesitate to obey him, and, having taken an affecting leave of the Count's family, in which M. DuPont was still included, and of her friends at the convent, she set out for the loose, attended by the unhappy Annette, and guarded by a steady servant of the Count. End of Volume 4 Chapter 9 Recorded December 2008 in Pembroke, Georgia
2: Recording by Red Abrus The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 4 Chapter 10 Lulled in the countless chambers of the brain Our thoughts are linked by many a hidden chain Awake but one and lo. What myriads rise, each stamps its image as the other flies. Pleasures of memory. Emily pursued her journey without any accident along the plains of Languedoc towards the northwest, and on this, her return to Tolso, which she had last left with Madame Montoni, she thought much on the melancholy fate of her aunt who but for her own imprudence might now have been living in happiness there. Montoni too often rose to her fancy, such as she had seen him in his days of triumph, bold, spirited, and commanding, such also as she had since beheld him in his days of vengeance. And now only a few short months had passed, and he had no longer the power or the will to afflict. He had become a clod of earth, and his life was vanished like a shadow. Emily could have wept at his fate had she not remembered his crimes, for that of her unfortunate aunt she did weep, and all sense of her errors was overcome by the recollection of her misfortunes. Other thoughts and other emotions succeeded as Emily drew near the well-known scenes of her early love and considered that Valancourt was lost to her and to himself forever. At length she came to the brow of the hill whence on her departure for Italy she had given a farewell look to this beloved landscape, amongst whose woods and fields she had so often walked with Valancourt, and where he was then to inhabit when she would be far, far away she saw once more that chain of the pyrenees which overlooked la Vallée, rising like faint clouds on the horizon there too is Gascony extended at their feet said she oh my father my mother and there too is the Garonne, she added drying the tears that obscured her sight and tholos and my aunt's mansion and the groves in her garden oh my friends are you all lost to me must i never never see you more tears rushed again to her eyes and she continued to weep till an abrupt turn in the road had nearly occasioned the carriage to overset when looking up she perceived another part of the well-known scene around tholos and all the reflections and anticipations which she had suffered at that moment when she bade it last adieu, came with recollected force to her heart. She remembered how anxiously she had looked forward to the futurity, which was to decide her happiness concerning Balancourt, and what depressing fears had assailed her, the very words she had uttered as she withdrew her last look from the prospect came to her memory. Could I but be certain, she had then said, that I should ever return and that Valancourt would still live for me. I should go in peace. Now that futurity so anxiously anticipated was arrived, she was returned. But what a dreary blank appeared. Valancourt no longer lived for her. She had no longer even the melancholy satisfaction of contemplating his image in her heart. For he was no longer the same Valancourt she had cherished there the solace of many a mournful hour, the animating friend that had enabled her to bear up against the oppression of Montoni, the distant hope that had beamed over her gloomy prospect. On perceiving this beloved idea to be an illusion of her own creation, Valancourt seemed to be annihilated and her soul sickened at the blank that remained. His marriage with a rival, even his death, she thought, she could have endured with more fortitude than this discovery, for then, amidst all her grief, she could have looked in secret upon the image of goodness, which her fancy had drawn of him, and comfort would have mingled with her suffering. Drying her tears, she looked once more upon the landscape, which had excited them, and perceived that she was passing the very bank where she had taken leave of Ballancourt on the morning of her departure from Tholos, and she now saw him through her returning tears, such as he had appeared, when she looked from the carriage to give him a last adieu saw him leaning mournfully against the high trees, and remembered the fixed look of mingled tenderness and anguish with which he had then regarded her. This recollection was too much for her heart, and she sunk back in the carriage, nor once looked up till it stopped at the gates of what was now her own mansion these being opened and by the servant to whose care the chateau had been entrusted the carriage drove into the court where alighting she hastily passed through the great hall now silent and solitary to a large oak parlour the common sitting-room of the late Madame Montoni, where, instead of being received by Monsieur Cunel, she found a letter from him informing her that business of consequence had obliged him to leave Tholos two days before. Emily was, upon the whole, not sorry to be spared his presence, since his abrupt departure appeared to indicate the same indifference with which he had formerly regarded her. This letter informed her also of the progress he had made in the settlement of her affairs and concluded with directions concerning the forms of some business, which remained for her to transact. But Monsieur Cunel's unkindness did not long occupy her thoughts, which returned the remembrance of the persons she had been accustomed to see in this mansion, and chiefly of the ill-guided and unfortunate Madame Montoni. In the room where she now sat, she had breakfasted with her on the morning of their departure for Italy, and the view of it brought most forcibly to her recollection all she had herself suffered at that time, and the many gay expectations which her aunt had formed respecting the journey before her. While Emily's mind was thus engaged, her eyes wandered unconsciously to a large window that looked upon the garden and here new memorials of the past spoke to her heart. For she saw extended before her the very avenue in which she had parted with Valencourt on the eve of her journey, and all the anxiety, the tender interest he had shown concerning her future happiness, his earnest remonstrances against her committing herself to the power of Montoni, and the truth of his affection came afresh to her memory. At this moment it appeared almost impossible that Valancourt could have become unworthy of her regard, and she doubted all that she had lately heard to his disadvantage, and even his own words which had confirmed Count De Villefort's report of him. Overcome by the recollections which the view of this avenue occasioned, she turned abruptly from the window and sunk into a chair beside it, where she, sat, given up to grief, till the entrance of Annette with coffee aroused her. Dear madam, how melancholy this place looks now, said Annette, to what it used to do. It is dismal coming home when there is nobody to welcome one. This was not the moment in which Emily could bear the remark. Her tears fell again, and as soon as she had taken the coffee, she retired to her apartment, where she endeavoured to repose her fatigued spirits. But busy memory would still supply her with the visions of former times. She saw Valancourt interesting and benevolent, as he had been wont to appear in the days of their early love, and amidst the scenes where she had believed that they should sometimes pass their years together but at length sleep closed these afflicting scenes from her view. On the following morning serious occupation recovered her from such melancholy reflections. For being desirous of quitting Tholos and of hastening on to La Valley, she made some enquiries into the condition of the estate and immediately dispatched a part of the necessary business concerning it, according to the directions of Monsieur Cunel. It required a strong effort to abstract her thoughts from other interests sufficiently to attend to this, but she was rewarded for her exertions by again experiencing that employment is the surest antidote to sorrow. This day was devoted entirely to business, and among other concerns, she employed means to learn the situation of all her poor tenants, that she might relieve their wants or confirm their comforts. In the evening, her spirits were so much strengthened that she thought she could bear to visit the gardens where she had so often walked with Balancourt. And knowing that if she delayed to do so, their scenes would only affect her the more, whenever they should be viewed, she took advantage of the present state of her mind and entered them. Passing hastily the gate leading from the court into the gardens, she hurried up the great avenue, scarcely permitting her memory to dwell for a moment on the circumstance of her having here parted with Valencourt, and soon quitted this for other walks less interesting to her heart. These brought her at length to the flight of steps that led from the lower garden to the terrace, on seeing which she became agitated and hesitated whether to ascend. But her resolution returning, she proceeded. Ah, said Emily as she ascended, these are the same high trees that used to wave over the terrace, and these the same flowery thickets, the liburnum, the wild rose, and the serimthe, which were wont to grow beneath them. Ah, and there too, on that bank, are the very plants which Valancourt so carefully reared. Oh, when last I saw them she checked the thought but could not restrain her tears and after walking slowly on for a few moments her agitation upon the view of this well-known scene increased so much that she was obliged to stop and lean upon the wall of the terrace it was a mild and beautiful evening the sun was setting over the extensive landscape to which his beams sloping from beneath a dark cloud that overhung the west gave rich and partial coloring and touched the tufted summits of the groves that rose from the garden below with a yellow gleam. Emily and Valancourt had often admired together this scene at the same hour, and it was exactly on this spot that, on the night preceding her departure for Italy, she had listened to his remonstrances against the journey, and to the pleadings of passionate affection. Some observations which she made on the landscape brought this to her remembrance, and with it all the minute particulars of that conversation, the alarming doubts he had expressed concerning Montoni, doubts which had since been fatally confirmed, the reasons and entreaties he had employed to prevail with her to consent to an immediate marriage, the tenderness of his love the paroxysms of this grief and the conviction that he had repeatedly expressed that they should never meet again in happiness. All these circumstances rose afresh to her mind and awakened the various emotions she had then suffered. Her tenderness for Valancourt became as powerful as in the moments when she thought that she was parting with him and happiness together, and when the strength of her mind had enabled her to triumph over present suffering, rather than to deserve the reproach of her conscience by engaging in a clandestine marriage. Alas, said Emily, as these recollections came to her mind, and what have I gained by the fortitude I then practised? Am I happy now? He said we should meet no more in happiness, but oh! He little thought of his own misconduct would separate us and lead to the very evil he then dreaded. Her reflections increased her anguish while she was compelled to acknowledge that the fortitude she had formerly exerted, if it had not conducted her to happiness, had saved her from irretrievable misfortune from Balancourt himself. But in these moments she could not congratulate herself on the prudence that had saved her. She could only lament, with bitterest anguish, the circumstances which had conspired to betray Valancourt into a course of life so different from that which the virtues, the tastes, and the pursuits of his early years had promised. But she still loved him too well to believe that his heart was even now depraved, though his conduct had been criminal. An observation which had fallen from Monsieur St. Aubert more than once now occurred to her. This young man, said he, speaking of Valencourt, has never been at Paris, a remark that had surprised her at the time it was uttered, but which she now understood, and she exclaimed sorrowfully, "Oh, Valencourt, if such a friend as my father had been with you at Paris, your noble, ingenious nature would not have fallen. The sun was now set, and recalling her thoughts from their melancholy subject, she continued her walk, for the pensive shade of twilight was pleasing to her, and the nightingales from the surrounding groves began to answer each other in the long-drawn, plaintive note which always touched her heart. While all the fragrance of the flowery thickets that bounded the terrace was awakened by the cool evening air, which floated so lightly among their leaves that they scarcely trembled as it passed. Emily came at length to the steps of the pavilion that terminated the terrace and where her last interview with Valencourt before her departure from Tholos had so unexpectedly taken place. The door was now shut and she trembled while she hesitated whether to open it. But her wish to see again a place which had been the chief scene of her former happiness At length, overcoming her reluctance to encounter the painful regret it would renew, she entered. The room was obscured by a melancholy shade, but through the open lattices, darkened by the hanging foliage of the vines, appeared the dusky landscape, the garonne reflecting the evening light, and the west still glowing. A chair was placed near one of the balconies, as if some person had been sitting there. But the other furniture of the pavilion remained exactly as usual, and Emily thought it looked as if it had not once been moved since she set out for Italy. The silent and deserted air of the place added solemnity to her emotions, for she had heard only the low whisper of the breeze as it shook the leaves of the vines and the very faint murmur of the garonne. She seated herself in a chair near the lattice and yielded to the sadness of her heart, while she recollected the circumstances of her parting interview with Valancourt on this spot. It was here, too, that she had passed some of the happiest hours of her life with him, when her aunt favored the connection, for here she had often sat and worked while he conversed or read, and she now well remembered with what discriminating judgment with what tempered energy he used to repeat some of the sublimest passages of their favorite authors. How often he would pause to admire with her their excellence, and with what tender delight he would listen to her remarks and correct her taste. And is it possible, said Emily as these recollections returned, is it possible that a mind so susceptible of whatever is grand and beautiful, could stoop to low pursuits and be subdued by frivolous temptations? She remembered how often she had seen the sudden tears start in his eye, and had heard his voice tremble with emotion, while he related any great or benevolent action, or repeated a sentiment of the same character. And such a mind, said she, such a heart were to be sacrificed to the habits of a great city. These recollections, becoming too painful to be endured, she abruptly left the pavilion and, anxious to escape from the memorials of her departed happiness, returned towards the chateau. As she passed along the terrace, she perceived a person walking with a slow step and a dejected air under the trees at some distance. The twilight, which was now deep, would not allow her to distinguish who it was and she imagined it to be one of the servants, till, the sound of her steps seeming to reach him, he turned half round, and she thought, she saw Ballancourt. Whoever it was, he instantly struck among the thickets on the left and disappeared, while Emily, her eyes fixed on the place, whence he had vanished, and her frame trembling so excessively that she could scarcely support herself, remained for some moments unable to quit the spot and scarcely conscious of existence. With her recollection her strength returned, and she hurried toward the house, where she did not venture to inquire who had been in the gardens, lest she should betray her emotion, and she sat down alone, endeavouring to recollect the figure, air, and features of the person she had just seen. Her view of him, however, had been so transient, and the gloom had rendered it so imperfect that she could remember nothing with exactness. Yet the general appearance of his figure and his abrupt departure made her still believe that this person was Valencourt. Sometimes, indeed, she thought that her fancy, which had been occupied by the idea of him, had suggested his image to her uncertain sight. But this conjecture was fleeting. If it was himself whom she had seen, she wondered much that he should be at Tholo's and more how he had gained admittance into the garden but as often as her impatience prompted her to inquire whether any stranger had been admitted she was restrained by any unwillingness to betray her doubts and the evening was passed in anxious conjecture and in efforts to dismiss the subject from her thoughts but these endeavors were ineffectual and a thousand inconsistent emotions assailed her Whenever she fancied that Valencourt might be near her, now she dreaded it to be true, and now she feared it to be false, and while she constantly tried to persuade herself that she wished the person whom she had seen might not be Valencourt, her heart as constantly contradicted her reason. The following day was occupied by the visits of several neighboring families, formerly intimate with Madame Montoni, who came to condole with Emily on her death, to congratulate her upon the acquisition of these estates, and to inquire about Montoni, and concerning the strange reports they had heard of her own situation, all which was done with the utmost decorum. And the visitors departed with as much composure as they had arrived. Emily was varied by these formalities and disgusted by the subservient manners of many persons who had thought her scarcely worthy of common attention, while she was believed to be a dependent on Madame Montoni. Surely," said she, "there is some magic in wealth which can thus make persons pay their court to it when it does not even benefit themselves. How strange it is that a fool! or a knave with riches should be treated with more respect by the world than a good man or a wise man in poverty. It was evening before she was left alone, and she then wished to have refreshed her spirits in the free air of her garden. But she feared to go thither, lest she should meet again the person whom she had seen on the preceding night, and he should prove to be Valencourt. The suspense and anxiety she suffered On this subject she found all her efforts unable to control, and her secret wish to see Valancourt once more, though unseen by him, powerfully prompted her to go, but prudence and a delicate pride restrained her, and she determined to avoid the possibility of throwing herself in his way by forbearing to visit the gardens for several days when after near a week she again ventured thither she made annette her companion and confined her walk to the lower grounds but often started as the leaves rustled in the breeze imagining that some person was among the thickets. and at the turn of every alley she looked forward with apprehensive expectation she pursued her walk thoughtfully and silently for her agitation would not suffer her to converse with annette to whom however Thought and silence were so intolerable that she did not scruple at length to talk to her mistress. "'Dear madam,' said she, "'why do you start so? One would think you knew what has happened.' "'What has happened?' said Emily in a faltering voice, and trying to command her emotion. "'The night before last, you know, madam?' "'I know nothing, Annette, replied her lady in a more hurried voice. The night before last, madam, there was a robber in the garden. A robber? said Emily in an eager yet doubting tone. I suppose he was a robber, madam. What else could he be? Where did you see him, Annette? rejoined Emily, looking around her and turning back towards the shadow. It was not I that saw him, madam. It was Jean the gardener. It was 12 o'clock at night, and as he was coming across the court to go to the back into the house, What should he see but somebody walking in the avenue that fronts the garden gate? So with that, Jean guessed how it was, and he went into the house for his gun. His gun? exclaimed Emily. Yes, madam, his gun. And then he came out into the court to watch him. Presently he sees him come slowly down the avenue, and lean over the garden gate, and look up at the house for a long time. And I warrant he examined it well, and settled what window he should break in at. But the gun, said Emily, the gun. Yes, madam, all in good time. Presently, Jean says, the robber opened the gate and was coming into the court. And then he thought proper to ask him his business. So he called out again and bade him say who he was and what he wanted. But the man would do neither. But turned upon his heel and passed into the garden again. Jean knew then well enough how it was and so he fired after him. Fired? exclaimed Emily. Yes, madam, fired off his gun. But, holy virgin, what makes you look so pale, madam? The man was not killed, I dare say, but if he was, his comrades carried him off. For when Jean went in the morning to look for the body, it was gone, and nothing to be seen but a track of blood on the ground. Jean followed it, that he might find out where the man got into the garden. But it was lost in the grass, and... Annette was interrupted, for Emily's spirits died away, and she would have fallen to the ground if the girl had not caught her, and supported her to a bench close to them. When, after a long absence, her senses returned, Emily desired to be led to her apartment, and though she trembled with anxiety to enquire further on the subject of her alarm, she found herself too ill at present to dare the intelligence which it was possible she might receive of Having dismissed Annette, that she might weep and think at liberty, she endeavoured to recollect the exact air of the person whom she had seen on the terrace, and still her fancy gave her the figure of Ballancourt. She had indeed scarcely a doubt that it was he whom she had seen, and at whom the gardener had fired. For the manner of the latter person as described by Annette was not that of a robber, nor did it appear probable that a robber would have come alone to break into a house so spacious as this. When Emily thought herself sufficiently recovered to listen to what Jean might have to relate, she sent for him, but he could inform her of no circumstance that might lead to a knowledge of the person who had been shot or of the consequence of the wound and after severely reprimanding him for having fired with bullets and ordering diligent inquiry to be made in the neighbourhood for the discovery of the wounded person, she dismissed him and herself remained in the same state of terrible suspense. All the tenderness she had ever felt for Valancourt was recalled by the sense of his danger, and the more she considered the subject, the more her conviction strengthened that it was he who had visited the gardens, for the purpose of soothing the misery of disappointed affection amidst the scenes of his former happiness. Dear Madam, said Annette when she returned, I never saw you so affected before. I dare say the man is not killed. Emily shuddered, and lamented bitterly the rashness of the gardener in having fired. I knew you would be angry enough about that, Madam. Or I should have told you before. And he knew so too. For, says he, Annette, say nothing about this to my lady. She lies on the other side of the house. So did not hear the gun perhaps. But she would be angry with me if she knew seeing there is blood. But then, says he, how is one to keep the garden clear? If one is afraid to fire at a robber when one sees him. No more of this, said Emily. Pray leave me. Annette obeyed. And Emily returned to the agonizing considerations that had assailed her before but which she at length endeavored to soothe by a new remark. If the stranger was Valancourt, it was certain he had come alone and it appeared therefore that he had been able to quit the gardens without assistance a circumstance which did not seem probable had his own been dangerous. With this consideration she endeavoured to support herself during the inquiries that were making by her servants in the neighbourhood. But day after day came and still closed in uncertainty concerning this affair, and Emily suffering in silence at length drooped and sunk under the pressure of her anxiety. She was attacked by a slow fever, and when she yielded to the persuasion of Annette to send for medical advice, the physicians prescribed little beside air gentle exercise and amusement. But how was this last to be obtained? She, however, endeavoured to abstract her thoughts from the subject of her anxiety, by employing them in promoting that happiness in others, which she had lost herself, and when the evening was fine, she usually took an airing, including in her ride the cottages of some of her tenants, on whose condition she made such observations as often enabled her, unasked, to fulfill their wishes. Her indisposition and the business she engaged in relative to this estate had already protracted her stay at Tholos. Beyond the period she had formerly fixed for her departure to La Valley, and now she was unwilling to leave the only place where it seemed possible that certainty could be obtained on the subject of her distress. But the time was come when her presence was necessary at La Valley. A letter from the Lady Blanche, now informing her that the Count and herself being then at the Chateau of the Baron St. Foy, proposed to visit her at La Valley on their way home, as soon as they should be informed of her arrival there. Blanche added that they made this visit with the hope of inducing her to return with them to Chateau Les Blanc. Emily having replied to the letter of her friend and said that she should be at La Valley in a few days, made hasty preparations for the journey, and in thus leaving follows, endeavoured to support herself with the belief that, if any fatal accident had happened to Valancourt, she must in this interval have heard of it. On the evening before her departure, she went to take leave of the terrace and the pavilion. The day had been sultry, but a light shower, that fell just before sunset, had cooled the air, and given that soft verdure, to the woods and pastures which is so refreshing to the eye, while the raindrops still trembling on the shrubs, glittered in the last yellow gleam that lighted up the scene, and the air was filled with fragrance exhaled by the late shower, from herbs and flowers, and from the earth itself. But the lovely prospect which Emily beheld from the terrace was no longer viewed by her with delight. She sighed deeply as her eye wandered over it and her spirits were in a state of such dejection that she could not think of her approaching return to La Valley without tears, and seemed to mourn again the death of her father, as if it had been an event of yesterday. Having reached the pavilion, she seated herself at the open lattice, and while her eyes settled on the distant mountains that overlooked Gascony, still gleaming on the horizon though the sun had now left the plains below alas said she i return to your long-lost scenes but shall meet no more the parents that were wont to render them delightful no more shall see the smile of welcome or hear the well-known voice of fondness all will now be cold and silent in what was once my happy home tears stole down her cheek as the remembrance of what that home had been returned to her. But after indulging her sorrow for some time, she checked it, accusing herself of ingratitude in forgetting the friends that she possessed while she lamented those that were departed. And she at length left the pavilion and the terrace without having observed a shadow of Valancourt or of any other person. End of Volume 4, Chapter 10